I told you when we started this series in 1 Timothy that we're marching our way through some difficult passages. And so here we are. Let's, our Father and our God, we are grateful to you for your holy word. We are grateful to you for your instructions that you give us in how to worship you um, in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that as we have read your word, I ask that you would give me your help as I proclaim uh, not just your word, but proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, And before we get started, uh, after my opening illustration, I was so helped by Philip Ryken in his commentary my uh, sermon, I wanted credit. Uh, I interpret words, but uh, for the first seven to ten minutes of this sermon um, are very much uh, Philip Ryken's thoughts, so I wanted to give him due credit. However, Philip Ryken did not Um, give me the opening illustration. The opening illustration is that when my girls were growing up, once a week, Mandy would let them get out their Barbie dolls. I mean, this was not just a little box of of dolls. Um, They had every Barbie accessory known to mankind. Uh, We called this once a week extravaganza Barbie World. And uh, I cannot exaggerate how big a production uh, was the Barbie world experience. During this period of life, I was only the only male in the house. Uh, life was viewed from a decidedly female perspective. Even our cat was named Miss Kitty. My undergarments were called Daddy Panties. If, uh, and I won't go any further there. But in May of 2001, my son Will was born into Estrogen Central. Uh, he had, but he had never, ever any desire to participate in Bob Barbie World or, short, or, or shop for American Girl dolls or anything like this. I'm, I'm killing him, I know. Sorry, Will. Uh, you're a pastor's son. Um, bear up under it. Um, anyway, he, he just naturally loved things that boys love. Uh, I didn't have to teach it to him. It came naturally. But there has been a movement within Western academia to teach that gender is a fiction. That gender is an unnatural social construct that is foisted upon the unsuspecting boys and girls Uh, in our society. As a result, some women no longer want to be women, and many men no longer know what it means to be a man. Philip Ryken rightly says that the Bible stands against the androgyny of these postmodern times. The Bible insists that gender is a God-given fact. The Bible recognizes that the identity of every human being is gender-specific. 
that there are essential differences between men and women. Many of you are saying, duh, don't I know that? Well, there are many people um, who are in the position of influencing opinions who do not know that and are trying to influence us um, otherwise. The Bible, in the very first chapter, spoke to this issue when God created humanity. In Genesis 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This verse teaches us that men and women are truly equal in the image of God. And yet, at the same time, there is a God-ordained difference between the genders. Because of these gender differences, God sometimes gives us special instructions for men and also for women. And He gives us these instructions uh, typically in how we are to live in the church. Because Paul's chief concern in this letter to Timothy is to describe how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. You'll remember from 1 Timothy 3.15, that's the, the theme of this letter. Therefore, it should not surprise us that he tells us about some of the differences between the roles of men and the roles of women in the church. I think where many struggle with the differences between the roles of women and men in the church is that they think of the church as a business corporation or a social networking group. In the interest of business practices, a business or a networking group wants to be more egalitarian. Rightly so. They want equality. They want employees to be judged on their performance, not on their gender. But the church is not a business. The church is a family of faith. The Bible refers to the church as a household many times. And so the structures within the relationships in the church, the, the structures upon which the relationships in the church are built are based on a household rather than a business. The husband and wife relationship is a better analogy for how the church views the relationship for men and women in the church. And I recognize this is a very imperfect analogy uh, that you could take easily too far. So please don't read into this analogy anything more than what I'm trying to say. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, In the image of God He created him, male and female He created them. So there's an absolute equality between men and women in terms of value, in terms of the, the way God created us uh, in His eyes. But when men and women differ in their gender and therefore differ in the roles that God has given to men and to women. Our different gender and our different roles complement each other so that we can be everything that God intends us to be in the church. The different roles in the specific home, in the marriage relationship, uh, the roles uh, for the husband and the wife complement each other so that we can be everything God intends us to be. He intends the marriage 
to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. He intends for us in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the way that we, um, the, the different genders complement each other in the church, helps us to reflect the glory of Christ here in our society. Over the next two weeks, we're going to look more, more closely at the roles um, for men and women in the church. <clears throat> Sorry, I've had a little uh, tickle in my throat the last couple of days. Um, but this week, we specifically are going to look at the differences Paul outlines in regard to worship. So, it's important for us to understand that Paul is not trying to give an exhaustive list for how men and women are to conduct themselves in worship here in chapter 2. Rather, what he's doing is he is addressing very specific issues in the, in the Ephesian church. Apparently, men in the church were more given to anger and quarreling than to praying. Instead of their, taking their issues to God... They were taking their issues out on each other. So you see in verse 8, Paul says, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So Paul is addressing men in the church, um, men in the church in Ephesus, and he lays down instruction for all men across all ages. Because he says he desires that in every place, whether in Ephesus during Paul's day or here in Brandon in our day, he desires that in every place men should pray. I think this means that every time God's people get together to worship, men should pray. This does not exclude women from praying. Far from it. But apparently the men needed a special uh, instruction to, uh, to pray. They, need, they, they needed to be commanded to pray. Men are to be leaders in their homes. They are to be leaders in the church. But there's a tendency for men to shrink back in that responsibility. So Paul reminds them that in every place, the men should pray. Men, how is your prayer life? Men, how is your prayers here on Sunday mornings during the worship service? Do you seek God as the prayers are being lifted up? Or do you close your eyes along with everyone else and use uh, the relative uh, peacefulness to plan your week? Or daydream? Or think about the football game. Let's face it. It takes discipline to fully participate in the prayers of the church. But that's what you are called to. Not just the men. Also the women. Even the children are called to participate as the prayers are being lifted up. As Jim Eggert came and, and uh, led us in prayer. As Jimbo led us in prayer. All of us are to participate. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about congregational prayer. But men, it seems, need a little extra kick in the pants. A little extra 
encouragement, exhortation to pray. Paul's, um, Paul recognizes this, so he gives us some help in being more focused in prayer. So men, if you struggle, he gives us some help. What he does is he talks to us about our posture in prayer. Look again at verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he talks about our posture in prayer. Lifting up holy hands. Men, you are commanded to lift up your hands in prayer. It doesn't tell women that they cannot lift up their hands in prayer. But men, you are specifically told to lift up your hands in prayer. Men are not typically as expressive in worship. Men, the Bible, as far as I can tell, never tells tells us to lift up our hands during the singing. Many people do it. That's okay. But it tells us specifically, in prayer, we are to lift up holy hands. So, men, while every head is bowed, presumably every eye is closed, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul commands us, to lift up holy hands to the Lord in prayer. And because everybody's eyes are closed, nobody will be the wiser but you and God. Why does God want men to lift up hands in prayer? Well, typically, men have lifted up their hands um, in prayer toward heaven. And this is the way the church has, has, has viewed this practice. And it uh, used to be very widespread practice. But men have lifted up their hands toward heaven with their palms open in order to receive their blessings from God. This posture is communicating to God that we are needy. And we want our blessings to come from God alone. It's almost like the young birds in the nest. You know, the young birds, when the mama bird uh, comes back with a worm, they all open their beaks as wide as they can because they want a little piece of the, the, the nice, juicy worm from the mama. And that's, that's the posture here. God, we have our hands open because we want you to fill them. We want our blessings to come to you. Here we are, God. We belong to you. You have promised to give us everything we need for life and for godliness. If a child asks for a piece of bread, you, our Heavenly Father, won't give us a a snake or a stone. So we come to you with our hands open. This posture helps us focus And it helps us remember that what we are really doing in prayer, we are depending upon the Lord. The first prayer that I always pray, I usually thank God and worship Him and adore Him to help me take my eyes off of me, myself, and I. Put my eyes on Him, reminded who He is, reminded of... uh, the, the power and the sovereignty and the glory and the love of God. 
And then when I began focusing on me, my first prayers typically, God help me. Because we do need His help. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 says that the flesh is so powerful that the very thing we want to do, we don't do. The very thing we hate, we end up doing. Who will deliver us from this body of death? God help me. Even in prayer, I don't know what I should pray. Even my prayers are going to be, there's going to be such temptation to uh, spend what I get only on myself rather than looking outside myself. God, help me. And so I have my, my hands open. God, help me. I need you. And that's what we're saying. Most fundamentally, when we come to God lifting up our requests, But this posture does not add any power to our prayers. Rather, this posture adds power to our soul. We are weak. Even in prayer, we we need God's help. Even in, in praying to the King of Heaven, our minds are so easily led astray. And so if a posture of lifting up our hands and opening them in God's presence, helps remind us what we are really doing in prayer. It helps us. The posture is more for our benefit than God's benefit. You can pray with your eyes open. You can pray on your knees. You can pray prostrate, flat out out on the floor. You can pray with your head bowed. All these different postures we see in the Scriptures. These postures are not only reflective of what we are saying to God. It helps us to say it with more fervency, more zeal, more intentionality. That being said, I must point out that God wants us to lift holy hands to Him. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my petitions. If the men in the church were always arguing and quarreling, then no amount of posturing would help their prayers be answered. Wrong attitudes towards others. Unrepented of sins in your life. Those things really do hinder your prayers. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11 verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against, your, against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So, if men stereotypically struggle to keep their focus as as they are praying, ladies tend to face the temptation to draw undue attention to themselves when they come to worship. Therefore, Paul turns his attention to the women in the church in Ephesus in verses 9 and 10. He says, Likewise, Also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, 
not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Paul's still talking here in the context of worship. He's still talking here in the context of prayer. So he uses the word likewise to help us make the connection. I desire that that in every place the men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel as he, as he uh, continues on. His point is that while men are to pray without arguing, women are to pray without making a display of themselves by what they wear. Before I, I say what Paul is, before I explain what Paul's saying, it might be helpful for me to clarify what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that the latest fashions are bad or that wearing jewelry is sinful. He's not saying that at all. Rather, the situation in Corinth, um, as it was in many uh, of the the large city churches uh, in Paul's day, was that there there was in the church a gathering of very many wealthy uh, ladies in the church. They were... Um, from the heads of society. Paul even mentions in Philippians that uh, a lady from, Paul, from Caesar's own household was coming to the church in Rome. And um, as we read Paul's letters, we see him m- mentioning in different places, especially at the end of Romans, uh, in Romans 16, he mentions many prominent ladies from Greek society. And so these prominent ladies had joined the church. But the majority of Christians in Paul's day were from the poorest of the poor. Many were um, Jewish Christians who had uh, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were kicked out of the synagogue. They were kicked out of uh, their, their Jewish societal connections. They were basically left with nothing. They were impoverished. And so you had the richest of the rich, the poorest of the poor, and the ladies from the highest realms and rungs of society, they got ready for church. Uh, The historians tell us that uh, their hairstyles would take several hours for them to, to do the particular hairstyles. And then they would accessorize their hairstyles with, with gems and with pearls and with, with, uh, with, with gold wreaths and, and different things like that. And so the contrast was staggering between the rich and the poor. And so Paul says that these women should rather adorn themselves with more modest apparel and more importantly with a godly lifestyle that puts more importance on love uh, for their poor uh, sisters in the Lord than on their fashion statements. And this perspective is not limited to Paul. Peter said in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, 
but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So Paul is saying, Peter is saying, that the way to be more attractive is through godliness, not gaudiness. In fact, later in 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul lists some of the way, some of the activities that the ladies were to engage in, some of the, the actions that uh, they were to put on, so to speak, to adorn themselves with. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he says, um, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. He's saying, this is the way to adorn yourselves. This is the way to make yourselves beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. Young men, these are the kinds of traits you should look for uh, in, a, in a lady. Um, the, the man who discipled me used to say, don't marry a Christian woman, marry a godly woman. And I found one and I married her. <laughs> when I was in Uganda, there was a... Um, I woke up one morning and there was all kinds of commotion outside my window. We were in an uh, in a Episcopalian or Anglican, actually, uh, guest house. And there were no uh, glass panes in the window. And so this commotion outside my window was quite loud. And what had happened was a, uh, a, a large gathering, 15, 20 women, had gathered. And they were crying and wailing and probably throwing dust in the air. It was quite a commotion for about 10 minutes. <coughs> and then they stopped. And then they started singing hymns for about 10 minutes. And then they got up and left. I'm laying in my bed going, Lord, what's going on here? And then another gathering of ladies came and gathered in that spot and cried and wailed and then sang hymns. The, again, the, the contrast was so stunning. And so finally I dragged myself out of, uh, out of the little cot that I was sleeping on and uh, went and asked somebody what was going on. And what had happened was, there was a woman in the, in the room next to mine who had died during the night. She had had AIDS, and um, she, uh, she died, and she was well-beloved among the, um, the, the Christians there in this Anglican um, guest house. Prior to coming to know the Lord, she... Um, lived a fairly immoral lifestyle, and she was so proud of her Western-style um, hairstyle. She called it her glory. And she was the only person in, um, in uh, the town that had a, a Western-style haircut. This was back in 1989, 1990, just after the Civil War had ended about three years earlier. So... 
to have a Western-style haircut. It was her glory. But she came to know the Lord. And she had taken such pride in her hairstyle that she shaved herself bald. And uh, because she wanted her beauty to be in the Lord and not in her uh, Western-style haircut. Oh, thank you. I have never, I've always resisted having water up in the pulpit because I'm thinking, I've I've watched pastors sitting up in front of everybody drinking a big swig of water or y'all might be thirsty. (laughs) So, I, uh, but I, I, uh, thank you, Joe, I needed that. And thank you, Hillary, for for noticing. She does love me in spite of what she says. (laughs) I'm playing. She, she has, uh, has fun with me from time to time, so I have fun with her. So anyway, um, she died and all the Christians in the town of Mambali, all the Christian ladies were coming to mourn her death, but then remembering that her, their hope was in the Lord, and so they concluded their mourning with, um, with singing of hymns. Men, if you struggle to be focused in prayer, ladies, If you have that temptation to dress in such a way to draw attention to yourself rather than putting the attention on the Lord and uh, putting your attention on your brothers or your sisters in the Lord, I want to urge you, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is truly beautiful. He is the one upon whom our focus and attention should be on. He is the one who helps us in prayer. He is the one who helps us in every aspect of our lives. Look to Him. Keep your gaze upon Him. He is what is important. Everything else fades into the distance. He is our Savior. Let's pray together. Almighty and ever-living God, we thank You for Your great love for us in Jesus. We thank You that He is the light of the world. We thank You that any light that we have in ourselves is only a reflection of His righteousness that He has given to us. We thank You that any light that we have in ourselves is empowered by Your Holy Spirit who has made our hearts His home. God, I ask that you would help us uh, as your people to be focused in prayer, to lift up our hands in prayer, knowing that you are so willing and able and ready to bless us. Lord, help us not to draw attention to ourselves, but to put all our attention on our Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy to receive it. We ask in his name. Amen.